Hi, this is Stephen Devincenzi. Today we have a bonus episode of Send 7. Instead of our normal seven minutes of world news, this episode is a conversation I had with Helena, a refugee from Ukraine. I am very sorry, but the audio quality of our conversation is very bad. This is because we recorded it using Zoom, and Helena was using mobile internet with a poor connection. Sometimes it's difficult to understand her. However, I wanted to publish the conversation anyway, because I found it very interesting to hear about her experience. Thank you, Helena, for joining us. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Thanks for your invitation. Helena, thank you for, for joining us. Maybe we can start uh, before the Russian invasion and you can just tell us what your life is normally like. I will tell you what our life, uh, how it looked like. So uh, I think that uh, the time for this war was selected not by chance. Uh, Ukraine started to grow economy last eight years and uh, I work in travel industry. And you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when we heard that Russians have charter flights to Maldives, and uh, you cannot believe me, but in, in the last eight years, we had the same story with Ukraine. So we started to have charter flight to Maldives, to Dominican Republic. So clearly people start earning more money. Uh, we had our minimum salary increased and many people from Russia itself, the building uh, guys, uh, renovation guys, they started to be back to Ukraine because they got paid better. Mm. Uh, so with all this uh, economy increase and with the bright future, uh, I think this is uh, was very unbearable by our North neighbor. Uh, uh, he understand that uh, himself, he understood that he cannot go back to Ukraine. Uh, to Russia, if Ukraine lives better than Russia. Uh, yes, yeah, so I think this was the exact planning, exact timing, and because we started to live better. Uh, I mean, like starting from restaurants, uh, uh, ending with the vacations abroad. I can tell you that uh, Ukraine never lived that good in the last 30 years. Right. And what did you do uh, before this war? I, I was working in travel industry all my life. It is like 12, 13 years. Uh, and, you know, the travel sector is very sensitive. So you it could, was like normal, normal life. You could really notice that people's lives had improved in the last uh, 10 years or so. Yeah, it was just right after the uh, revolution of dignity, right after uh, Yanukovych left Ukraine. And we were not uh, anymore uh, uh, a Russian satellite. So, and we saw, you know, all that money that European Union and many countries uh, invested in Ukraine in terms of forms, in terms of facilities. Clearly, saw it. We saw new infrastructure projects. We saw the new hospitals. We saw the new medical system. So it was working slowly, but it was working. 
Um, can you tell us what the last six weeks have been like for you? Uh, the short statement, it was like a nightmare uh, and some surreal event. Uh, you know, I was only watching this in movies, uh, World War Two, when people just attack the train and you cannot tell any, you cannot take any luggage with yourself and everyone tries to fit into train and laying down on the floors, they are sitting in the toilets uh, because we need to feed more people in the train. And among them, there are small kids. Um, and there are no men because it's forbidden for them to leave Ukraine. Uh, so the mother with three kids uh, alone and disabled people who tried to get to train. So this is, this is a clear nightmare. Uh, when, when it all started, uh, we, I don't know why we thought that it will be over in three days. Yeah. Weird perception. Mm. Um, when did you leave Ukraine? I left on 26 on February, so it was the third night of the war. Mm. Um, and you told me that now you have gone to Turkey. So I imagine, first of all, you went to Poland or another country close by. Uh, how did you end up in Turkey and why? Even before Turkey, I have to tell you that the normally the distance between Kiev and Lviv, the western Ukraine, is 500 kilometers. And we went this 500 kilometers with the 16 hours by train because it, it, it stopped all the time because of some missile um, alarms. And we were afraid that train will be bombed or something will happen. That's why train stopped all the time. And then from Lviv to Poland, to the border, normally it's two hours, but it's another 16 hours or 15 hours by train, wow. the same reason. Uh, so it was, was not easy. And uh, to tell, uh, I have to thank all the Polish people for their support, because apart from what the government does, and they accept people even without any passport, without any documents, uh, but people in Poland, they themselves, are willing to help, they are ready to help, despite our complicated history in the past times. Um, they were ready to share with us their homes, their food, their clothes, their money, everything. Um, but of course, clearly it's three million people who flew to Poland from Ukraine. And uh, Poland is not such a big country and there is not so many apartments to offer to where to live. So we stay temporarily uh, three weeks uh, within an Airbnb host who didn't want to take money from me. Uh, I, I was feeling very awkward and she, bu she bought me food. And also, you know, from the stress, I had problems with my health. I was calling emergency and my mother as well. She took care of us in the hospital. So it's like, it's like, mm -hmm. it is, it is same people, but we needed to move because you cannot be, I cannot, you know, live forever in the place and not let people earn money with Airbnb. So, uh, so, so you to, stayed, yeah. sorry. So you, you stayed uh, for a while in this Airbnb. Was that in Warsaw? No, it was near the border of Poland. It was the city, which is very hard to pronounce, Uszczyki Dolne. 
So this is just on the border of uh, Ukraine. Um, you made the decision to go to Turkey. Yeah, I did this decision, and many people like me uh, do decision not because we want to go go to a specific country, but because if you have someone to help you within Germany or Turkey or Italy. Uh, people who have free apartments who can just give you away this for rent for small money or free of charge, you are looking for some friends to help you. If I had these friends in France or UK, I would go there. It nice. doesn't matter which country you are in, um, the most important you are safe. So you had some friends uh, in Turkey or something like that? Yes, actually, the also nice story. I, I consider myself very lucky. This apartment is uh, owner is Ukrainian lady mm -hmm. uh, who was in the suburb of Kiev, and because they were under occupation, she could not move to to anywhere. She had she has a large family also, and she, it was very risky to go out from Kiev. And this apartment was staying uh, just empty. That is why I found her, and she offered me to go here. Um, right, so that lady is uh, or was living in a, a place which was under Russian occupation. Have you spoken to her about her time under Russian occupation? Yeah, she was uh, near the small city, not in this, uh, you know, you know, like Bucha or Irpin. It was like very small city, and luckily they still had. Uh, mobile data to connect to internet. And I was talking to her almost every day and I noticed that she is avoiding to um, speak in details about war or about what's happening because she was afraid that the telephones might be listened by someone. And to preserve her life, she didn't speak much, but from what I understand, they are really afraid and they are hiding into uh, these bomb shelters or uh, basements uh, every night. Right, so you say that she was uh, hiding in her own home, in her basement, and she was scared of talking on the phone because she was scared that the Russians might be listening to her conversations. Is that right? Yes, it is right. I don't know if technically it is possible to listen our phones, but mm -hmm. uh, people were afraid and scared that they might uh, hear something. And um, I suppose you have been living in Kiev for most of your life. Is that right? Yes, it is right. Yeah. And uh, do you have many family members who are still there? Um, I suppose most of the men that you know are still in Ukraine. Um, what contacts do you have with them? Yeah, I have many friends in Kiev, uh, especially those family now living in their occupation, Kherson city. And I have family from South Ukraine, Odessa. Uh, so about my friends in Kiev, uh, almost everyone left Kiev who could. Uh, but those who stayed, uh, they are, I don't know, I felt like, I felt like a traitor. I felt like maybe I should stay like they stayed and to suffer with them. Somehow, maybe my suffering will be in uh, help, helpful, which is, is not, but psychologically, it's very um, hard to live for the Kiev and people who are still, was still there and near the suburbs. 
they are my personal heroes. But those people who left Kiev, uh, I had a friend and a business partner who has uh, had home house near the Kiev and his house was destroyed, it was burned. So now they don't have any place to go back to. And also have to mention that all these small cities which are now appearing in the news, um, these are small cities or almost villages, but it, it is considered to be elite rich districts of Kiev. So people who was building their future, who had some uh, decent money to buy property there, it was not like uh, a poor people. It was mm. people who were middle class or upper class. And I know some of them, they made huge payments to buy homes. It took credits and loans from banks to afford to buy this house. Mm. And now they are left with anything. You're talking about the uh, neighborhoods around Kiev, like Irpin and Bucha, maybe? Yes, it is. It was very, very nice uh, townhouse, let's call it like this. Imagine in the middle of the forest, uh, there are small, small houses, like small villas. And it was very beautiful. I was visiting my friend there the latest. It was uh, in October. Yeah. And uh, we were having a barbecue party. And now uh, my heart broken seeing these pictures from this city. Yeah, I think um, especially in the last three or four days, these pictures from Bucha have really uh, changed the world. Uh, it seems like uh, a, a appalling war crime, um, which has happened in, in Bucha. And um, the United Nations Security Council held a meeting yesterday, um, which was just about that. And uh, Zelensky spoke uh, there. Moving away from your personal experience slightly, in this moment, with the atrocities in Bucha and the aggression of uh, of Putin around Ukraine, the siege of Mariupol, and the destruction of cities like Kharkiv and uh, and other places. What do you think that the world should do? What do you think that the international community could do to help Ukraine? Or how should they act right now? I think this is uh, what happened in Bucha, especially. And also the bombarding the Kharkiv season of Mariupol. It's not only the matter of Ukrainians, uh, it's a matter of whole world. And maybe it's time, and actually it is time, to think how can uh, Russia as a country be a member of the Security Council of the United Nations and to use veto vote all the time and when it is a part of war. For me, it is not clear, and since I'm in Turkey, I must say that Turkish president... Uh, he said a couple of times, I heard it, that the world is bigger than five. It means that we should give more power to different countries and not and to remove this veto rule, uh, which was uh, absolutely now, it's not up to date. 
you see, the international law doesn't work. The United Nations cannot even issue resolution to be implemented because Russia will never vote for this. Uh, so me and many people now are questioning why we are paying all these membership fees to United Nations. What does it bring to us? How does it protect? Uh, how, can we count on this organization or we just have countless resolution on paper and that, that's it? Everyone saw picture from Bucha and they said, yes, we are sorry, this is a huge crime. And what the, is the outcome of this? I have, I have no answer to these questions and no one has. So someone have to raise these questions finally. Uh, how to improve this system, which collapsed, doesn't work any, anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think uh, you're, you're right when you say that nobody uh, knows what to, to say in this situation. And it is very clear to me that the United Nations and the Security Council and the world doesn't have a system in place for this kind of uh, problem um, because there really has been no effective response. Um, but the, the, the West, especially NATO countries, have been sending uh, a lot of weapons into Ukraine to support the Ukrainian army. Um, they've been probably, I think, the biggest sanctions uh, in the world have now been placed on Russia. Russia has been effectively cut off completely from uh, the Western world. Uh, of course, they're still doing business with India and China and uh, and some other countries, but their connections to to uh, uh, the Europe mostly have have and and America have disappeared uh, overnight. Is there anything else that you could think of that you would want the West to do or the international community to do right now? Well, there is uh, two things left to do uh, to completely put embargo on gas. Uh, because you see the countries, they are, they are willing to not to buy oil or coal but they are still depending on gas uh, and no one can cut it, cut it completely. I understand Europe not, uh, but um, there must be some uh, different sources how to, how to deliver that gas, I think. And the second one, we were all waiting there switching off SWIFT uh, from Russia, but we still see that uh, two biggest banks of Russia VTB and second, I don't remember the name. Yes, not on this gift channel. So, uh, and uh, countries are afraid to do it for some reason because they cannot exchange uh, payments uh, with the uh, gas. So this is this must be done because for now, yes, sanctions are huge, massive, but Russia didn't feel it uh, now. And we need to do something so Russia can feel it now mm. to stop funding this war. Imagine that every day uh, Europe or US or some country send you $1 billion every day. So you have money to continue this war. 
uh, I think we don't ask to, you know, to switch off Russian gas forever, but at least do for some time. So Russia just run off money. That's it. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think um, uh, a lot of countries in Europe are trying to reduce their uh, use of Russian energy uh, very quickly. I think Germany said that they will uh, stop using Russian energy by the end of next year. But of course, this the reliance on Russian energy has uh, been part of the system for such a long time that I think it's very difficult for them to just uh, turn it off straight away. But yeah, I agree with you. It uh, would be a, a significant uh, step. Um, just in, in case uh, there are people uh, listening who, who uh, are thinking about the justifications of, uh, of this war by Putin and the Kremlin, um, I, I know that uh, a lot of uh, the Russian media talks about how uh, Ukraine is full of uh, Nazis and, uh, of course, the uh, more ridiculous side of things also says that the Russian, sorry, the Ukrainian government is full of drug addicts, which is uh, really makes them look quite stupid. But um, do you think that there is any truth to this uh, calling of, of Nazism in, in Ukraine? Uh, look, I have family in Russia, uh, part of my family I had, I had before, before war. And after they repeated everything that propaganda repeats them every day on TV, just, you know, just stopped talking to them and blocked from everywhere. But this is what you said. Uh, I will reply one by one. So about Nazis, uh, you will be surprised, but there is a neo-Nazis everywhere in every country. In Russia itself, what I what I re read, uh, I think they have hundreds thousand of active members of neo-Nazis. In every country, there's neo-Nazi move movement. It's ultra-right uh, movements in every country. You cannot avoid it. Uh, they will be existing. I don't know. It has some uh, charming of being supreme nations. I don't know why they're following this movement. But there is Nazi in every country. But it's important to see uh, who people are voting for. So we had what you call, what you can call, it's not neo-Nazi, but like ultra-right nationalist party. They were... Uh, claiming that uh, Ukrainian must be only for Ukrainian-speaking people, and they were very radical in their statements. And guess what? They had 2% on the voting, on the parliament election. So clearly, no one supports them. Yes, yeah. they still have their party, they still have their gatherings, but it's not supported by people. Yeah, so in fact, 2% 2, 2 is much less than... Uh far-right parties in, in a lot of Western countries. I know in, in uh, France, uh, the uh, far-right party will certainly be getting a lot more than 2% in uh, next week's election. Yes, this is what I'm talking about. Like, and to, you know, to uh, cut it from the context, 
attacks they are showing in the Russian media our uh, some nationalist party representative who is uh, uh, speaking, uh, I don't know, um, very rough about Russian speaking people. But this is the same if I would, uh, you know, before the war, uh, Russia had uh, one party which called this liberal but uh, this is a very funny uh, name for them because the represent main, main representative of this party, Mr. Zhirinovsky, uh, he was saying even 20 years ago that uh, we will destroy Kiev. Uh, uh, Ukrainian Dynamo Kiev uh, team will be playing in Moscow. The Crimea will be annexed by Russia. You know, he was speaking it for quite a while, for 20 something years. And when we heard it, Ukrainians when, and the Russians themselves, when he was speaking this, uh, everyone was just laughing. So yeah. they were laughing at their nationalist parties, but they took our nationalist party some funny statements as a threat. But uh, yeah, there is Nazis and also it's very funny. They say we have Nazis government when our president never hided that he's a Jew. He's Jewish and uh, his family suffered from Holocaust. His grandfather was fighting in Red Army against Hitler. So this is a manipulation and about drug addicted. Actually, I have to tell that this one is uh, partly is uh, guilty of our own faults. Uh, you know, when Zelensky won the election, uh, our oppositions uh, who didn't like Zelensky, they were always saying the guy is using drugs. Is this based only because someone doesn't like him? And also because he was a member of, uh, uh, how you call it, like uh, he's a media person and he's a star, kind of star in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And you know, they say in star environment, people using drugs, but it's mm -hmm. nothing more than just, you know, fantasy. And because I don't like someone, I'm trying to find some reason not to like him. Yeah. That's it. But Russian media took it as a very uh, powerful propaganda against him and me, and I think millions of Ukrainians now are ashamed uh, that we even, you know, we even let Russia use our own uh, internal uh, conflict. Yeah, I don't think you can blame yourselves for the ridiculousness of Russian media. Um, but uh, so one other justification for this war has been to protect uh, Russian speakers. Maybe you could say something about that. I am Russian speaker. Uh, I am originally from West Ukraine, but my mother is Russian. You know, after World War II, uh, because Poland was next by Soviet Union, many Polish people go back to Poland and it was empty houses and places. So my family, my mother's mother, they were, they were uh, coming to Lviv from Moscow. So they are Russians. They are not like Russians, but they are Russians by blood. So I was always speaking Russian at my home with my mom and Ukrainian with my father, because he's Ukrainian. Uh, I have to tell you that in the beginning of the independence, 1991, 1992, I had some problems because uh, people were pointing me like children in the school were pointing at me and trying to make fun of me because I was using some Russian words. Uh, 
And at that time, it was even uh, not dangerous, but you know, not very common to use Russian language in my home city Lviv, because everyone would look at you very suspicious. Uh, but the tourism started to develop, you know, like in 2000s, after 2000s, when people were mixed up uh, and we visited Donetsk, Donetsk people visited Lviv, when tourism started to de be de being developed, we had no problems with Russian-speaking people. Uh, you know, my, um, uh, my own opinion that you can speak at home or at streets whenever language you want, but of course, if you want to go for a state exam, exam uh, or you to hold a position in government, you, of course, you need to speak uh, Ukrainian which language you will speak. Uh, it's a, it's official language of Ukraine. So yeah, this is just, you know, uh, uh, another reason. I think they, they will not be, uh, it will not be enough time for them to bring up another reason and another reason how to, why they invaded Ukraine, why they attacked Ukraine. So one, it was Russian language, then it was NATO, then it was biolaboratories. Uh, by the way, this biolaboratories was always there in Soviet time. There is laboratories in every country. It's a research institute. So yeah, so they, they will not be giving up to find another reason. And um, this is insane to believe what they are saying. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that uh, Russia or Putin has invaded Ukraine? Uh, well, when I was studying at university, um, I was graduated from international relations. Uh, so we were studying politology very, very, uh, like it's, it was a majority of our subjects in politology. And we happened to read uh, Mr. Dugin. He is a Russian politologist uh, who is the author of idea of Eurasia, Eurasia. And uh, I think that Putin goes by this book uh, because in this book, Dugin clearly says that the most uh, horrendous uh, tragedy in the modern history is not Second World War or it is not First World War, but the tragedy for them is collapsing of USSR. Mm -hmm. So they try to bring back all the countries to another uh, 21st century USSR, and they would use everything at their powers to have it back. Uh, in this uh, book, I see everything that Putin is doing now. So first, next Crimea, and it wasn't also by accident, you know. Um, uh, we, of course, as Ukrainians, we have uh, lots of friends and family across all Ukraine. And uh, my mother was talking to her friend in Sevastopol, where. Uh, Russian uh, armed forces are based and she was telling her even always when we're talking she's always asking Tanya is it is, uh, do they shoot Russian speaking people in Lviv and she my mother saying no why are you asking even this is funny question no because I saw on tv they show us that uh, there is a one nationalist guy there so you know they were feeding just to be uh, sorry just to be clear for our listeners um what Halina is talking about now is a woman who lives in uh, Sevastopol, which is in Crimea, which was annexed, uh, basically taken by Russia in 2014. And obviously, Russia now controls the media in uh, Sevastopol, in Crimea. 
And so uh, Halina is telling us that this uh, woman is asking her mother uh, if it's true that in Lviv, in Ukraine, uh, if uh, Russian speakers are being shot. Continue. Yes, and uh, my point is that she, they didn't speak before annexation. Actually, it's not after annexation, it's before annexation. So imagine they had a huge propaganda machine since Ukrainian independence. They were planning this. And uh, Crimea, uh, okay, I don't know, I know that this is legal referendum, but I wouldn't be surprised if I see that Crimea people really voted for entering Russia because what Russia did with the television, with everything in Crimea since independence, uh, it was prepared ground for this kind of uh, mood of people. Uh, they were, uh, you know, and um, in not only in Crimea, also in Donbas region, it was huge money, huge billion of dollars allocated uh, to organize Russian speaking clubs, Russian conferences, Russian something, you know, to fund all these uh, anti-Ukrainian uh, movements. And uh, it was planned. I cannot say it was like by surprise. It was all planned. And I think when Putin just became a president, uh, I don't know, he read all the book of Dugin and he decided to be a new emperor. Uh, so what you were asking me about uh, why Russia decided to invade Ukraine, uh, this is the only one reason uh, they want to bring back USSR. And even if they don't want to bring back now uh, Russian, let's say Russian government to Ukraine, but they want to use our resources they want to use our country for titanium, radium, for all the coal and wheat and all resources we have. And they want us to be like a puppet country as we were uh, when Yanukovych president. They want Ukraine to be maybe like another Belarus, where there is just a, a dictator who follows the orders of uh, uh, the Russian government. Yes, it is. So uh, this is the main reason. Uh, no one, I hope, no one believes that the reason that Russia attacked Ukraine was a NATO membership, because it is ridiculous. And Ukraine uh, wants to be NATO member since independence. And even Yanukovych, uh, he also conducted some joint trainings with NATO. So no one should believe that, that the, uh, the reason for invading Ukraine is only NATO membership. It's just, a, it's just a reason to invade. If not this reason, he would make up another reason. Um, you have family in Kherson, I think, which is a city in the south of Ukraine. Um, it's a majority Russian-speaking city, I believe. And it's been under Russian occupation for, I think, four weeks, five weeks now. Um, what contact have you had with your family there? Uh, and have they told you anything? Yeah, I, I'm lucky to have contact with them since they have still Ukrainian mobile operators. Uh, so we are in contact constantly. Uh, my family, as you said, they are also Russian speaker. And before the war, they before the, even before 2014, let's call like this, they were sympathizing with Russia very much. They were given Russia as an example. 
they have also relatives in Shakos coming to them. So they were really pretty much like pro, as you call, pro Russian uh, uh, people. But after 2014, everything changed. They understood that Russia just entered with the troops and fueled uh, weapons to terrorists. And so they became more cautious uh, about what's happening. And now, when they are under occupation, uh, they are terrified. They are terrified. They are afraid. Also, as I told you, they don't want to disclose the names of uh, 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 cities or places in the city where they are located. They don't want to disclose any information what they are children doing because they're also thinking that that might, might be listened. And um, especially my, my relative, they have a damaged roof under their house. Uh, because it was a missile or some shootings there. Uh, also, uh, Russians doesn't allow to provide any humanitarian aid, any corridors, uh, is any corridor to open. So they are suffering from uh, not enough food and not enough medicine. And what Russian channels are doing, what my relative tells me, so they are coming with their own trucks with the food and some medicine and some water. And they are, and people, of course, they are going to take something to eat and drink. And then they film it on TV and showing it like, oh, you see the grateful Ukrainians uh, taking our aid because Ukrainians left them alone with no food, with no supplement, nothing. Mm -hmm. And even this, she says, she doesn't even want to go and take this aid because it's an embarrassment for them. Uh, they yeah. also told me that uh, they, are going to pro they, they are going to protest every single day. Every day they are going to protest. And if in the beginning, uh, Russian soldiers were uh, scared by people because they didn't expect so much people coming out on the uh, center of the city with Ukrainian flags singing our national anthem, and they did nothing, and now, after four weeks, they became aggressive. So they start uh, throwing some grenades into people. They start shoot into people. And it is now dangerous to go and protest, but they still do this every day. That's incredible. Um, and Kherson is a majority Russian-speaking city. This is exactly the type of place uh, that Putin has said needs to be uh, liberated so that uh, Russian speakers do not face oppression from Ukraine. Uh, and yet, despite that, actually what we see is the complete reverse, that uh, people are protesting uh, with pro-Ukrainian uh, protests every day. Yes, Stephen, I must say that before war, uh, Ukraine was uh, really like a different, it was uh, divided into different parts. And we were always uh, asking, where are you from? To understand, like from Russian party or Ukrainian party or from South. From people from Kiev. Kiev, people didn't like anyone. And you know, it was very, very different parts of the country. But after war, I must say, everyone s s suddenly realized that we are all Ukrainians. 
Putin did uh, one good thing. He did something that no president of Ukraine could not do in any time of their lives. He united us so much and we realized we are one country, one nation, uh, one state. Uh, and this is amazing. I never, you know, uh, me personally, before the war, I was thinking that if Russian troops enters Kherson, cities like Kherson or Kharkiv, that it will be second Crimea, that cities will be just, you know, gone and no one will even go and think to protest. Uh, and we are all surprised with all this moving, movement on the south cities and eastern cities. Those people are heroes. And I al al already promised myself and all my friends who are working in travel industry this year, we don't go to any Greece, to any Thailand or whatever country we wanted to go. We all go to Kherson, we all go to Odessa, we all go to somewhere inside Ukraine and we will support these people and we just want to hug them and to thank them for their pro-patriotic position. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's uh, really quite ironic that the, the person, uh, Putin, who was uh, trying? Who is trying to rebuild the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, and um, uh, has actually been the the person who has uh, enforced Ukrainian um, uh, unity more than anyone else. It's really quite incredible. But I think it also shows uh, how wrong he was, because clearly Putin and his circle actually did think that it was going to be possible to come into places like Kherson and uh, Kharkiv and ha have, as you say, uh, be more or less welcomed and that the Russian speakers would want them to be there and things like that. And that is just clearly not happening at all. As I said before, when just Putin was elected and all this Russia, why people liked Russia, because in Russia, people lived always better than we did. And you know, this is like when you see that your relative uh, receives some amount of money every month and you don't, of course, you will go and say like, yo, we need a president like Putin because he did um, uh, good structures there and he fight corrupt corruption and something. But as I told you, like the last eight years, we started to live better than Russians live. Uh, so that is why our people understood finally also some realized that we are living in good conditions. We are having everything we can. We can go and buy food we, we want. Uh, we don't have any limitation. We can travel. We can do everything. And also this economic development, I think, uh, is a huge uh, mark why Ukrainians started to feel like Ukrainians. No one wanted to leave the country anymore. Absolutely, Helena. I was uh, lucky to go to Ukraine two years ago. I, I visited uh, Odessa and uh, I absolutely loved it. And I had a great time, some really fantastic people and uh, a beautiful city. And I can't wait to go back as soon as it's possible. Um, Helena, I know that you have to go soon. Um, you are actually taking a flight today, aren't you? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm lucky that 99% of the population of Ukraine because uh, I work in travel industry and I have some discount tickets. 
so I need to go back to Poland uh, because I asked some friends to come to my house in Kiev and to uh, bring some clothes to me. Because, you know, I told you when we escaped, we took nothing. So I have only uh, the cold, everything from winter. And now it's uh, summer is coming. And of course, it's uh, very expensive to buy everything from scratch. Yeah. So I need to catch my flight. I will just take my suitcase and go back here. And hopefully I will go back to Ukraine in the next uh, one month and uh, the life will be continuing as normal before war. So you, you want to go back soon? Yes, I, I want to go back soon. Uh, some people say don't, don't have a rush because uh, we don't believe that Russian troops just withdraw and no. they, it's over. Uh, you know, it's like... A, silence before a storm yeah yeah um well i will let you go but first of all there's um one last question i i have to uh say to you which is why is your english so good <laughs> well uh I, I have no answer to that question but probably because i work in travel industry and we use english most of the time with their partners when we even with my staff when we are exchanging the mails we are writing in english it's easier it's okay. shorter and easier yeah but but also when if you visited odessa maybe you noticed that now the young generation of our people they know english they learn english and we want to be integrated into uh european union and western society as much as we can we don't want to go back to SSR. And of course, it's, I, I think that this is an additional plus to know as many languages as you can. And Russian is definitely one of the UN languages. And if you know it, that's great. But English is a must. Absolutely. Yeah, it's true. When I was in Odessa, all of the people who were young uh, do, speak, do speak English as well. So uh, that's fantastic. Halina, thank you so much for, for joining uh, me today. And um, I've probably got another million questions that I could ask you, but uh, we'll save them for another time. Please stay in contact and I look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. Thank you. Steven, thank you very much and thanks for the invitation. And if you have any questions, just drop, <laughs> drop me a message.